You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? And that was Vinnie Paz, an excerpt from the song Writings on Disobedience and Democracy. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can check out all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at youcan'tbeneutral.com. you find some links there as well. You'll find a link there to send me a message and some links to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this and all of my podcasts free and independent. This episode is about being on the margins, about people on the margins, and even more so about people speaking up for those that are on the margins. When you're marginalized, you don't have the power to get yourself off of the margins. What are the margins? The margins are neglect, societal neglect, or or even worse, implicit and explicit oppression from the society in which you live. That marginalizes people. It It puts them on the margin. It keeps them on the margin. It keeps them from being successful. Uh, every just social structure should ensure that it um, allows and supports people in thriving, in becoming their best self. Um, and our social structures, economic structures, etc., don't do that. They explicitly choose winners and losers it's how they're built it's how they're designed and so we must constantly fight against that against those structures against those parts of structures that are um, being oppressive and against the structures themselves where they can't be reformed they need to be replaced or abolished like I said, the people on the margins don't have the power to stand up for themselves. That doesn't mean they don't stand up for themselves and don't try to stand up for themselves. Many, many of them do. They fight for their lives. They fight for fairness. They fight for their opportunities. They shouldn't have to fight for those things. But in our current structures, they do have to fight for those things. It's not enough for them alone to fight for their lives, it's imperative that those of us not on the margins, those of us further away from the margins, marginalized in other ways perhaps, but not in the, in those ways for the particular people we're trying to help lift up. It's important for us to stand up for those on the margins, redefine where the redefine where those margins are, move those margins, be inclusive to those people who currently are excluded. So that's the loose thread for this episode. Uh, the UK, which one of my friends on Twitch, 
shout out to $27 who streams news and politics on Twitch. Um, calls Turf Island. Turf being slang for trans-exclusionary radical feminism or trans-exclusionary radical feminist. I think the radical part's not, not ideal. I think reactionary is a better term there. Trans-exclusionary reactionary feminist. doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well, but I think it's more accurate. It is about self-proclaimed feminists who don't believe trans women are women and fight hard against the uplifting of trans women as women. So trans folks are marginalized to start with because there's a significant minority. They're marginalized by religious zealots and even maybe not even zealots, but by uh, religious folks. They're marginalized by these trans exclusionary reactionary feminists. So feminists, someone who you would expect would be more likely to see an oppressed person recognize that they're oppressed and, and fight to uplift them. Uh, but in this case, there's a, a significant segment of folks that call themselves feminists that do exactly the opposite. Trans folks are marginalized, marginalized by the lesbian and gay community as something other, as something that uh, is not a part of their oppression. And so they're marginalized there still, there as well. And exactly in the same way as with feminists, lesbian and gay community understands oppression. You don't have to go back very far. You don't have to go back at all in, in some sense, some uh, aspects of oppression, and in some countries, heavily, heavily still oppressed, these are some folks you would expect would understand oppression, recognize oppression, and not contribute to that oppression. And yet, a significant segment of that community, the, the gay and lesbian community, participates in the oppression of trans folks. So it's important for folks within that community and in those communities and outside of those communities to say, no, this is bullshit. This is unacceptable. You are wrong. And I am going to support, uplift, do whatever I can to help trans folks come away from the margins to, or to, to maybe redefine those margins and say, no, those margins don't exclude trans folks anymore. Our systems, our structures, our, the way we talk, the way we act, how we think and feel about people, those margins are pushed out to make sure they include folks in the trans community. One British lesbian performer, Grace Petrie, has really put her flag in the ground, so to speak, and said, Exclusion of trans folks is not acceptable. She did it in a song on her album, Queer as Folk, called Black Tie. And she's done it more recently 
in interviews. Here is the song Black Tie by Grace Petrie. It's a jungle out there The year 2018 I didn't think We'd still be sorting babies into blue and pink And all our progress Well I wonder what it means That the only girls close that work for me Turn out to be boyfriend jeans Well that's fine Cause I decline A narrow set of rules that just don't work Cause these red lines but they're not mine And if you need me You can find me ironing my shirt Cause I'm in Black tie tonight Get a postcard to mine Year 11 self In a year 11 hell Saying everything's gonna be Alright No you won't grow out of it You will find clothes that fit And the images that fucked you We're a patriarchal structure And you never will surrender To a narrow view of gender And I swear there'll come a day When you won't worry what they say On the labels, on the doors You will figure out what's yours And it's a bloody nightmare Trying to fight the spread of bigotry and fear that's uniting Piers Morgan and Jermaine Greer And all our progress, yeah I wonder who it's for When I dare to utter that trans lives matter And all I got was a turf war, well that's fine Cause I decline Your narrow set of rules, they just don't work These red lines, well they're not mine And if you need me, you can find me ironing my shirt Cause I'm in black tie tonight Get a postcard to mine Year 11 self In a year 11 help Saying everything's gonna be alright No you won't grow out of it You will find your clothes that fit And the images that fucked you Were a patriarchal structure And you never will surrender To a narrow view of gender And I swear Nothing to do with fitting neatly in a box That was constructed to make it seem Like people come in just two teams And anything that's in between ain't good enough And you will love And you'll be loved And you're in black tie tonight Get a postcard to my year 11 self in a year 11 hell Darling, everything's gonna be Alright No, you won't grow out of it 
you will find clothes that fit and the images that fucked you were a patriarchal structure no you never will surrender to that narrow view of gender and there's folks you've yet to meet but you're exactly up their street and they've been waiting just as long to hear someone sing this song and better days are on their way when it won't matter what they say on the labels on the doors you will If you missed it, one of those lyrics in Black Tie is, I dared to utter that trans lives matter, and I ended up in a turf war. Of course, turf war is a great play on words in this song. Turf war is a common term for struggling over territory, turf, T-U-R-F. But in this case, the turf war is T-E-R-F, trans exclusionary, reactionary, feminist. Here's an uh, article written by Lily Wakefield, an interview with Grace, published at pinknews.co.uk. As a butch lesbian whose butch identity is a, quote, central idea to her songs and her identity on stage, Petrie told Pink News that she feels, quote, an urgent responsibility to distance myself from gender-critical feminism. And gender-critical feminism here is in parentheses so is not the, the exact words that she used i wish we could hear those exact words butch lesbians have become a pawn used in arguments by anti-trans feminists who insist that young people are transitioning instead of embracing their butch identity quote butch phobia is a real thing it's a specific kind of homophobia petrie said while vehemently disagreeing with the transphobic talking point. If anti-trans groups are truly, quote, worried that kids are deciding that they're trans because they're unhappy just being butch lesbians, she asked, why would they not make it their mission to increase the level of positive butch representation? The idea that the response to that is to take away access to health care for trans kids is so the wrong way around. Petrie explained how damaging it was growing up with, quote, absolutely no butch representation anywhere. She said that while it was definitely true that more lesbian representation was desperately needed, it is, quote, saddening and maddening to see that topic co-opted for the persecution of another group. It's not the case that we're suddenly overrun run with trans rights and trans representation, or that trans people are in some way colonizing the spaces that we have for lesbians. That isn't true at all. It's still overwhelmingly the case that like 99% of culture is catering to straight, white, cis, able-bodied men. Trans people are not the enemy. Passionately, Petrie said, I want to say to these transphobic lesbians, 
Turn your ire towards the deserving target of it. Turn it towards the patriarchy, which is where it belongs. And the Petri song that we listened to, Black Tie, has another fantastic lyric. And the images that fucked ya were a patriarchal structure. Bravo for rhyming fucked ya with structure. I played shows in this country to thousands and thousands of queer people and thousands of lesbians, and lesbians are not asking for the persecution of trans people. You know, that's not on their radar. So if you actually were listening to lesbians, I don't think this would be where you would be putting your energy. With the onslaught of transphobia from politicians across the political spectrum and the media, as well as fringe gender critical groups, we have reached the point of, quote, classic British moral panic in the same way that we had with gay people in the 80s, Grace Petrie said. It's been eye-opening to live through the last couple of years and realize that that's what it would have been like as a gay person in the 80s. The onslaught is literally daily in ways that are just maddening and sickening. I mean, the articles that use the murder of Sarah Everard to further the cause of transphobia. As a woman living in this country and feeling so unsafe as a result of the horrible truths that came out about that horrific murder, the idea that anybody could be looking at that and thinking, this is a way for me to get my point across, when trans women are just as terrified as cis women about that case. Trans women are facing just the same threats of walking down the street in the darkness and not knowing if harm is going to come to them. She continued, When people are that obsessive about it, that they would take a story like that and turn it to their own advantage, it makes me ashamed. It makes me ashamed to live in this country. I have no doubt that we're going to win in the end. But I think in 30 or 40 years, people will look back on it and they will see it as a stain on this country's history, the same way that we regard Section 28, the same way we regard the response to the AIDS, AIDS epidemic. It's another mass moral panic and failing of queer people, and it'll be looked back on, I think, with absolute shame by the history books. And another British musician standing up recently for trans rights uh, is Billy Bragg. Here is an article by Billy Bragg published at newstatesman.com. Last week, I found myself under fire from gender critical activists on Twitter who were agitated to discover that I had changed the lyrics to my 1991 single, Sexuality when performing the song live on tour. And this is something Billy Bragg frequently does and does very, very well. He takes his his songs that have been out for decades, and when he's performing them live, he'll tweak the lyrics to be relevant to something today. Where I previously had sung, Just because you're gay, I won't turn you away. If you stick around... I'm sure that we can find some common ground, which I, as a young person in 1991, when that song came out, thank you very much, Billy Bragg, for putting that message out at that time. For the past few years, I've been replacing gay with they and some common ground 
with the right pronouns, thereby turning the lyric into, just because you're they, I won't turn you away. If you stick around, I'm sure that we can find the right pronouns and an expression of allyship with the trans and non-binary communities. Although music cannot change the world, it has no agency, it can change your perspective, and it can challenge your prejudices. Throughout my career, I've used my songs to promote allyship among my audience for the female victims of male violence in songs such as Levi Stubbs' Tears and Valentine's Day is Over, brilliant, brilliant song, Valentine's Day is Over, and for the gay community and Tender Comrade, as well as the aforementioned Sexuality. The latter was released at a time when a combination of the AIDS epidemic and the Tories' Section 28 legislation stirred up a moral panic against homosexuality. Thirty years later, however, encouraging your audience to find common ground with the gay community is no longer such a challenging statement. We've come a long way since then. Equal rights legislation has given gays and lesbians the same benefits and protections as everybody else. But for all our progress, there remains one group of marginalized people whose legitimacy can be questioned among liberal circles, transgender women. The comments of a few high-profile gender-critical feminists has created a quandary for some leftists. Those of us who formed our political beliefs in the 1970s and 1980s are instinctive supporters of women's rights. Our moral compasses are confused. The younger generation can see that we are conflicted. Every night on tour, I frame sexuality with a plea of support for Stonewall, the UK's premier defender of LGBTQ rights, which is currently under attack from powerful anti-trans elements within the government and the media. Witnessing the response at one show, someone tweeted how amazing it was to see people who grew up in the 1980s roaring in approval at a statement of support for trans rights. To better understand where the gender-critical movement sits on the left-right spectrum through which we late boomers persist in seeing the world, it helps to look at the U.S. There is There, it's pretty clear-cut where opposition to trans rights is coming from. 84% of white evangelical Christians believe that gender is determined by sex at birth. The same demographic has similarly strong opinions about preventing women from getting abortions and are often firm supporters of Donald Trump, who in 2018 proposed policies the New York Times described as attempting to define transgender out of existence. As in the U.S., the use of female public toilet facilities by transgender women has become a flashpoint, with gender-critical women arguing that they don't feel safe if trans women who have not yet fully transitioned, are allowed to use the same bathrooms. In making this argument, they are echoing the tropes used against the gay community in the 1970s and 1980s. That trans people are by nature sexual predators, that they cannot be trusted in the presence of children, that they're nothing but perverts. By using a handful of examples of abusive behavior to tar the whole trans community, they seek to make the very idea of trans rights a form of predation. There is also scant regard for the safety of trans women in this argument. The Washington Post reported on 10 November that 2021 has so far been the deadliest year on record for transgender people in the United States, highlighting the fact that transgender women are four times more likely to be murdered than cisgender women. 
And who is perpetrating this violence? Cisgender men. By seeking to push trans women back into the men's toilets, gender-critical activists are forcing an already vulnerable community to face the threat of more violence and abuse. The issue of trans rights is complex. Debating the issue via email with gender-critical activists, I found the argument inevitably boils down to the question of which is more important, biology or human rights. It's an argument made more difficult to negotiate by the fact that the hard-won rights of women must also be given full consideration. While this might seem insurmountable, it's not dissimilar to the challenge that feminists faced in the 20th century, when they were vehemently opposed by those who believed women's traditional roles within the family unit were more important than their basic human rights. The way forward requires a lot of calm deliberation and confidence building. Such measures are hard to sustain when the anti-trans movement in the UK is led by the LGB Alliance the very name of which seeks to erase the trans community from its place in the LGBTQ rainbow. I'm not erasing the gay community when I change the lyrics to sexuality. I'm simply updating them to reflect the changing times we live in. My hope is to encourage others of my generation to do the same with their long-cherished notions of an inclusive society. And from the fights and struggles of trans folks to be included in society and to, to no longer be marginalized. We take a look here at the media's role in marginalizing people. In this case, marginalizing black people, particularly young black people who think of themselves, refer to themselves as woke this piece is by Ari Paul and is published at fair.org. Woke is a label the aggrieved conservative suburbanite puts on the indignity of having to call their Starbucks barista they and finding Ibram X. Kendi on their child's school reading list. But as the Democrats prepare for the midterm election cycle, anti-wokeness has become a key theme about the party's future. Woke activists have been the chief culprits in Terry McAuliffe's loss in the Virginia governor's race, correspondents tell us, and the electoral ground loss generally by Democrats. The meaning of this ubiquitous term often shifts with context, originating in black vernacular English, according to Merriam-Webster, to, quote, stay woke means to question, quote, the dominant paradigm and to carry awareness of racial and other forms of oppression. The phrase became a Black Lives Matter call to action in the Ferguson Uprising of 2014. But as that revolutionary spirit ebbed, quote, wokeness has become a stand-in for what the right once decried as political correctness. And all of these terms like this, the right wing tries to, and successfully in some cases, decries as bad, as wrong, as evil, political correctness, uh, wokeness, it's because it is a challenge to their power. What it really is, is some small level of accountability that uh, we're calling you out. We're saying that, you know, the, the words you use, the, the way that you treat people, how you act is not appropriate in a society in which everyone 
should be supported. And this makes, you know, these folks angry when they get called out, when they get just a little bit of pushback, just even the most gentle pushback, they decry as wokeness, they decry as political correctness, they decry in the educational system as critical race theory. It's not critical race theory. K through 12, there is nowhere where critical race theory is taught, at least virtually nowhere. But it is a way to stir people up, to to push back against the slightest broadening, the slightest opening of opinions, the slightest opening to allow those marginalized folks to come into the social structures, to be involved, to be heard, to be, to be present, to be listened to. It's a buzzword that can indict liberals as a speech police or denounce anything from diversity initiatives, criticisms of aggressive policing in black communities, and LGBTQ complaints about Dave Chappelle's Netflix comedy special. In the wake of Black Lives Matter uprising and the rise in awareness of white nationalist organizing, corporate media have taken up the term, often in a pejorative or sarcastic context. The Wall Street Journal editorial page has featured the word in dozens of headlines, in pieces defending opting out of COVID-19 vaccines, transphobia, anti-teachers union positions, free market capitalism, and voter suppression. The journal has even used it to attack the Chinese Communist Party. This parade of anti-woke pieces is part of an ongoing crisis of legitimacy at the journal. As the Columbia Journalism Review noted, nearly 300 news side employers in July 2020 signed a letter to the paper's publisher, quote, complaining about a lack of fact-checking and transparency on the editorial page, which was undercutting the paper's credibility and making it difficult to recruit and retain journalists of color. The anti-woke backlash serves as a prime illustration. The editors are eager to attach a current buzzword about race and gender anxiety to any issue they can, no matter how much a stretch to defend corporate America and the Republican Party from any forms of politics anchored in addressing economic inequality. At the New York Times, the liberal and conservative columnists are united in their disdain for wokeness, seen as both an attack on Western openness and an albatross for the Democratic Party. Maureen Dowd said, quote, There is some truth that wokeness sunk Democratic candidates. She cited corporate campaign consultant James Carville, denouncing, quote, This defund the police lunacy, this take Abraham Lincoln's name off schools, even though neither of these things originated within the Democratic Party. David Brooks lamented how the language of wokeness was entering the corporate landscape, undermining, quote, meritocracy. Meritocracy's bullshit, by the way. Because wokeness, quote, instigates savage word wars among the highly advantaged. Thomas Edsel warned that questioning the gender binary as well as calls to defund the police polled poorly. Brett Stevens denounced wokeness as a liberal censorious crusade against offensive comedy, although the same columnist tried to get a professor fired for making a joke at his expense on Twitter. 
Stevens returned to the topic again with the high-octane sanctimony, saying that wokeness asserts the, quote, racism is a defining feature, not a flaw of nearly every aspect of American life. It is a form of, quote, indoctrination and extirpation based on a relentless form of race consciousness that defies the modern American creed of colorblindness. The problem is not just in the opinion page. John McWhorter, a Times contributor, has written a critical book against wokeness, and the Times didn't just give him a favorable review. It hired Zaid Jelani, a former contributor to progressive outlets like The Intercept and Fair.org, now writing for right-wing outlets like Quillette and Tablet, and devoted a full-time and devoted full-time to Twitter assaults against wokeness to give the book a public relations boost. Jelani began with the stated assumption that the left's worldview is that non-whites are little more than vi virtuous victims cast adrift on a plank in an ocean of white supremacy, and that this view has quickly taken over everything from universities to corporations. Jelani's only criticism of McWhorter's book was that it didn't offer a, quote, thorough enough takedown of racial justice writers like Tanahisi Coates, Robin D'Angelo, Ibram X. Kendi, and Nicole Hannah-Jones for Jelani's taste. Both Jelani and McWhorter are on the board of advisors of the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, which, despite its name, includes other activists who are riding the anti-woke wave, including Islamophobe Ayan Hirsi Ali and Barry Weiss, who dramatically resigned from the New York Times on the grounds that some of her colleagues disagreed with her conservative views. The review was rigged to prop up the right's hysteria about wokeness. At CNN, wokeness is why Democrats are losing electoral ground, and the news channel focused on moderate Democratic New York Representative Hakeem Jeffries' anti-woke attack on his left-wing party colleagues. Chris Saliza, covering Jeffries' statements, said that while, quote, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez remain hugely prominent voices within the Democratic Party, there are limitations of the activist left a statement that is true about any political faction. Saliza added that, quote, The Democratic leadership is fed up with having to hear from the Twitter left about how everything they are doing isn't good enough. In summation, the crime of wokeness is being part of the party's left flank and being too vocal about it. The Hill went further, saying that the party has gone to war over wokeness, which the paper described as the left's accusation that the party's centrists quote, are cravenly abandoning the party's core supporters in its core purpose. And former AP reporter Dan Perry said the American Center has a visceral distaste for the cultural war stoked by the woke project, throwing around phrases like defund the police and trigger warnings, but never linking these catchphrases with the platform of the Democratic Party. This year, especially in the wake of the 2021 elections, there seems to be an explosion of coverage where wokeness is flimsily pasted alongside, quote, the Democrats, with no particular obligation to show that ideas like white privilege or respecting trans people's pronouns are part of the mainstream party's platform, or that such notions are disastrously unpopular. But this problem has been brewing for years. With the headline trumpeting that white liberals have become woke, NPR two years ago reported that since 2012, quote, polls show an increasing number of white liberals being, began adopting more progressive positions on a range of cultural issues. 
The piece reported that progressive whites are more likely than in decades past to support more liberal immigration policies, embrace racial diversity, and uphold affirmative action. This inclination isn't described as a negative in the piece, but because NPR is the closest thing liberals have to counterbalance the conservative dominance of U.S. talk radio. It's notable that the organization chose woke, a term that now acts as a catch-all pejorative for excessive cultural acceptance, to reference not particularly radical ideas like that there's bias against black people in the criminal justice system. The media equation between woke and anything vaguely in the realm of social justice allows the right to paint once fairly moderate liberal ideas as some kind of fringe, an East Coast and California counterculture that is woefully out of step with meat-eating, flag-waving, straight white America. Worse, this trend of corporate media declaring wokeness as a contemporary existential crisis of American liberalism falsely converts tired political debates into something novel. I remember a time back in the 80s when Mike Dukakis was the Democratic nominee for president against uh, George Bush Sr. Um, and the, the term of the day that was vilified by the media was liberal. Liberal. Liberal was the worst thing you could be. And, and painting Dukakis as a liberal had the same kind of connotation back then as how they're trying to use the term woke now. The Brooks column invoking meritocracy captures a fairly odd conservative talking point about affirmative action, and the Stevens column asserting that racial consciousness is clinging to past injustices and won't reckon with the post-racial present echoes the George W. Bush administration. The idea that openness to immigrants is a multicultural affront to American culture can be heard in Pat Buchanan's famous ad, playing off fears of Press 1 for English. And that was back in the year 2000. The conservatives rally behind Chappelle's rant against the trans community are using the banner of edgy comedy as a form of retribution for perceived liberal dominance in media and entertainment. The Wall Street Journal has devoted at least three opinion pieces to the subject of wokeness and humor in the last year, while The Hill frets that this ambiguously defined woke cancel culture has, quote, robbed us of our sense of humor. But that's an argument that comes from City Journal editor Brian C. Anderson's 16-year-old book, South Park Conservatives, a product of the George W. Bush era of conservatism. Quote, it's a straight-up moral panic, Stephen Thrasher, a journalism professor at the Northwestern University who has served as a writer for The Guardian and Village Voice, told Fair. The whole thing is, quote, beat for beat the same thing as political correctness in the 1990s. The difference, as Thrasher sees it, is that the words woke and the contemporary cancel, unlike affirmative action or diversity, come from black vernacular. So when the corporate press mocks or belittles these terms, there is, quote, a glee of having co-opted it, that it's like an extra twist of the knife. And here's Natasha Mwansa, published at standard.co.uk. The word woke has been weaponized by those who wish to stifle debate. We need to reclaim it 
with pride. Samantha Price, a head teacher from Kent, has called on adults to stop mocking young people for being woke, warning that, quote, if they are consistently dismissed in this way, then they will just give up. She's right. I'm not sure where, when the term woke became something to scoff at, but over the last couple of years especially, it has fallen under the same umbrella as terms like snowflake and social justice warrior basically a way to describe a very whiny and oversensitive young person. The term woke was around as far back as the 40s, but has seen a revival since the Black Lives Matter movement came into play. While I don't think that many people would have declared themselves to be woke in the same way you declare yourself a feminist, it had no real subtext beyond being engaged with social issues in a way that the status quo wasn't. What it's now become is a way to silence and shame people into staying quiet about issues that actively put people at harm when not addressed. Of course, the people doing the mocking tend to lean further in the direction of the least marginalized, white male, upper class, etc. But when you look at what the people they're mocking stand for, the lack of compassion and self-awareness is bizarre. After all, at the end of every woke accusation is a person who thinks we should kind of care about environmental issues or racism or vulnerable members of society. Apparently, a huge ask coming from the coffee-buying, avocado-eating generation who can't simply bootstrap our way to social equality. So it's clearly less about the word and more about the underlying resistance to, quote, the way things are and the people who benefit from this, even though by criticizing those who are woke, those who quite decidedly aren't, become the oppressed for once. How often do we see far-right pundits fighting for their right to freedom of speech, as if their massive platforms are in a direct contradiction to those concerns? Just like Price says, weaponizing the word serves to discourage people from embodying it. Nowadays, everyone is expected to wear the feminist label as a badge of honor, but it really wasn't long ago that its connotations were seen as being angry and man-bashing. The result is a temptation to water down your activism, to act like things aren't so bad, and that it's better to be polite than urgent. But if we hadn't restored a sense of pride to feminism, we would never have had Me Too or conversations around female reproductive health or the wage gap. It doesn't help that young people who do use their platforms to call out inequality get bashed for it. If I were a teenager looking up to the likes of Marcus Rashford or John Boyega, seeing the amount of backlash they face for being too woke would be enough for me to keep my head below the parapet. This is the exact opposite of what we need to be doing to young people who will eventually be lawmakers and voices of authority. Once upon a time, wanting voting rights for women would have been seen as being too woke. Civil rights for black people and people of color would also have been seen as woke, and to a degree still is. The only way to nullify the bite behind the word woke is to reclaim it and watch it become an expectation rather than an insult. We've seen enough history to know what it looks like to be on the wrong side of it, and yet somehow... It's a place that a worrying amount of people insist on remaining. 
Here's a different story on the importance of standing up for those that are on the margins, those whose own voice is and has not been enough to provide them with the safety and dignity that they deserve as human beings. This is published at NBCNews.com. This is written by Gabriel Schubiner, who's a software engineer and researcher at Google, and Bathul Syed, content strategist at Amazon. Early in our careers, we were thrilled to contribute to technology that could create new ways of engaging with one another, our devices and information around the world. Today, we work at two of the largest technology corporations, Google and Amazon. We joined these companies because we saw the huge impact that they have on people's lives globally, and because we believe that developing technology at such a scale could promote good and bring people together. But we are not naive about the harm that technology enables. As workers, we are responsible for the products we create because we believe that every person deserves to live with freedom and dignity. We are calling on Amazon and Google to end their new contracts with the Israeli government and military, which violently oppresses millions of Palestinians. We've joined together as workers across corporate lines for the first time to send a joint letter Tuesday calling on Google and Amazon to respect Palestinian human rights and cancel Project Nimbus, the $1.2 billion venture that will provide cloud services to the Israeli government, specifically including the military. The services encompass both storage and computational resources, as well as features that enable users to easily train powerful artificial intelligence. Under these contracts, our cloud services would help facilitate the Israeli military's control and persecution of Palestinians, demolition of Palestinian homes in the occupied Palestinian territories, and attacks on Gaza that have hit civilian targets such as hospitals. In addition to the military, Project Nimbus will also provide our cloud services to the Israel Land Authority, an agency that enables Israel's continued expansion of segregated settlements in violation of international law and U.S. policy. This historic campaign follows the separate efforts of our fellow employees who urged our respective employers to support Palestinian rights and end their ties with the Israeli military during the surge of violence in May, which killed at least 230 Palestinians in besieged Gaza, including 65 children. According to our records, nearly 1,000 anonymous signatories at Amazon and more than 600 at Google have joined this call. Project Nimbus isn't the first time that Amazon and Google have collaborated with violent and harmful institutions. In response to a contract with U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which systematically surveils and cages undocumented migrants, Amazon workers launched We Won't Build It, which called on Amazon to end its investments in facial recognition technology that enables abuses of marginalized people. When Google signed Project Maven, a contract to improve drone technology for the U.S. military, Google workers pressured the corporation to pull out of the contract and institute a policy committing to ethical use of artificial intelligence. The Project Nimbus contracts were designed to leave our companies with little control over how our technology will be used. The contracts assure continuity of service 
even in the case either company wants to drop out due to the employee protest and specifies that companies cannot refuse service to any branch of the Israeli government, including the military. Despite the huge impact and harms these contracts could have, their details aren't available publicly or to workers, so concerningly, they limit scrutiny by human rights organizations and input from employees. Moreover, Project Nimbus stands in direct opposition to Google's stated commitment to ethical AI and Amazon's leadership principles. Google claims to value accountability and safety and says that companies, quote, can make money without doing evil. Amazon says we must, quote, make better, do better, and be better for the world at large. We agree. We want to work for companies that do more than pay lip service to ethical business practices. Instead, our company signed contracts that they knew would be highly controversial, yet relinquishes their ability to enforce their own publicly stated principles while attempting to deny workers our say in how our labor is used. Because of how interconnected technology is, employees who aren't involved in building cloud services will still see their work contribute to these oppressive actions unknowingly. We see this as a betrayal of their workforces, their values, and their users. Large tech corporations have responded to human rights concerns before, and they can do it again. In 2019, Google terminated Project Dragonfly, a censored search engine in China, and pulled out of the Pentagon's Project Maven in 2018. The same principles should apply to the Project Nimbus contracts and all future contracts based on their real-world consequences. Since we have no ability to guarantee that te the technology we build won't be used to commit human rights abuses against Palestinians, cutting the contracts entirely is the only ethical option left for our companies. More and more tech workers are growing concerned about how technology can harm communities. While we cannot be responsible for the actions of all our clients, we also cannot shed responsibility for the impact on people around the world when we sell services to organizations that hold the power of life and death over our own users. Our work has real-life consequences, both good and bad. When we join together, we can demand that the technology providers who so strongly influence our lives hold to principles of transparency, accountability, and ethical responsibility. Our companies have the choice to fully commit to using technology where it has a positive impact. By doing so, we can build a world that better aligns with the basic values of freedom and dignity central to creating a more just and equitable world for us all. And here's a story on actions by the Israeli government recently that underline the concerns of folks like these at Google and Amazon um, about how their technology is being used and for what ultimate purpose. This piece is written by Philip Weiss. It is published at mondoweiss.net. Israeli Defense Minister Benny Gantz designated six Palestinian organizations as, quote, terrorist groups a week ago because they have given evidence to the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court for an investigation of Israeli war crimes, including possible crimes by Gantz, say the founders of one of those groups, the Palestinian human rights group Al-Haq. 
The one thing that is common among these six organizations that have just been declared to be terrorist is that they have all been active, especially Al-Haq, in documenting and presenting dossiers to the International Criminal Court in The Hague regarding Israel's violations of human rights, the Palestinian-American lawyer Jonathan Kotab said yesterday in a webinar with the Balfour Project. The ICC is focused on the Gaza onslaught of 2014, Kotab said, where Gantz himself, now the defense minister, was the head of the Israeli armed forces, so potentially is a defendant in any upcoming litigation before the International Criminal Court. Who are these people to try me? I will declare them to be terroristic, and I'll make them suffer and pay. I will criminalize them. Israel killed over 2,000 Palestinians in that war, including more than 500 children. Gaza forces killed 73 Israelis. The Palestinian lawyer and novelist Raja Shihadeh who co-founded Al-Haq with Kutab in 1979, made the same point in the New York Review of Books. Quote, Why now, one might ask? The most probable answer is that Al-Haq has recently given strong support to the International Criminal Court, ICC, by supplying evidence for its investigation of war crimes by Israel during the 2014 Gaza War. The ICC is also studying accusations against the Palestinian militant group Hamas of war crimes in that same conflict. Among the candidates that could be named in such an indictment would be Gantz himself, who was then commander-in-chief of the Israeli military. Gantz ran for prime minister two years ago bragging that he had bombed Gaza, quote, back to the Stone Age during the 2014 war. The ICC announced in February that it was investigating Israeli actions since 2014 and those of Hamas too as possible war crimes. The move has been viewed as a potential shift in global power politics affecting Israel and its settlement program, and it has shocked and enraged Israeli officials. Benjamin Netanyahu called the probe pure anti-Semitism. American-Israel lobby organizations have decried the ICC investigation, and the White House has complied by backing Israel obstruction of the investigation. The Biden administration has said that it, quote, firmly opposes the ICC investigation of Israel for war crimes as illegitimate. Senior Biden officials have, quote, several times privately pressured the Palestinian Authority to withdraw its 2015 complaint to the ICC that resulted in the investigation to prosecute Israel for war crimes, including the settlements, Israeli media reported last month. The new Israeli Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett, has refused to meet with Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas, saying, quote, I see no logic in meeting Abbas when he's suing our soldiers in The Hague and accuses our commanders of war crimes. Kutab, now the head of Friends of Sabil North America, FOSNA, said that the terrorist designation of the six human rights and civil society groups is a sign of unprecedented Israeli arrogance at a time when it has been declared an apartheid state. Quote, it really marks a not unexpected but certainly pivotal turn in the whole situation and how Israel views itself. I think Israel has now reached the point where the arrogance, the hubris, the feeling of power and invincibility has reached the point where they really don't care. They actually really don't care. 25% of Israelis think and acknowledge that the situation in Israel is apartheid, and they say, so what? 
we can in fact get away with it. Netanyahu has said if international law is not in our favor, then we will change international law. He said the Israeli effort to blunt the investigation is in line with the Israeli Israel lobby's political effort inside the U.S. to push legislation punishing those who support the nonviolent BDS campaign against Israeli human rights violations. Quote, Somehow the nonviolent expression of support for Palestinians becomes itself a criminal offense. There is a new definition of anti-Semitism, the IHRA definition, which defines anti-Semitism to include anti-Zionism and actions against the state of Israel themselves, therefore become a criminal offense for which you may be prosecuted. Shahadeh described the terrorist designation as a landmark moment for Israel and for the international rule of law. Quote, This only highlights how important it is for the ICC to succeed in its efforts to hold Israel to, to account, and how important it is to frustrate the U.S. government efforts to obstruct the ICC's work towards bringing to justice any Israeli official who has committed war crimes. The Israeli government's perception that it is immune from any such prosecution has emboldened it to keep breaking international law over the years, as this latest order against al-Haq demonstrates. Shahadi quoted a Haaretz editorial saying the designation is a blow to nonviolent struggle. Quote, this is a boon to terrorist organizations and the use of violence. If all forms of resistance constitute terror, how can one resist the occupation without being a terrorist? And this next piece is by the BDS National Committee. You can find this at bdsmovement.net. 16 years ago, we launched Palestinian Civil Society's BDS call for international boycotts, divestment, and sanctions against apartheid Israel simil similar to those applied to apartheid South Africa. Today, numerous public figures, institutions, and human rights organizations worldwide, including Human Rights Watch, recognize Israel maintains a criminal regime of apartheid against all of us, Palestinians under Israeli occupation, Palestinian citizens of Israel, and the exiled refugees. Yet, most governments, regional and international organizations, as well as business enterprises, ignore their legal obligations, and many remain complicit in Israel's apartheid regime. Complicity is particularly deep among former colonial states and settler colonial states, which, like Israel, emerge from the ethnic cleansing and pillage of indigenous nations. International recognition that Israel is an apartheid state is a first step towards dismantling apartheid. Moreover, Palestinian freedom, justice, and equality cannot be achieved through criminal prosecution of apartheid officials and planners alone. Decolonization and a radical transformation of political and economic power relations and structures are essential to get there. In the past, the UN General Assembly condemned apartheid in South Africa as a threat to international security and as a flagrant violation of the Charter of the United Nations and the right to self-determination of peoples under colonial and foreign domination. It called on all states to end military, economic, cultural, and diplomatic relations with South Africa and established a special UN committee and center 
to help eradicate apartheid. As we are taking the struggle for Palestinian rights to the next level, we seek support in the United Nations, especially from countries of the Global South, that share the experience of resisting colonial oppression and exploitation. Since July 2020 alone, 10 ex-presidents, over 700 MPs, and scores of social and indigenous people's movements from across Asia, Africa, and Latin America have joined the Global South response, expressing support of Palestinian civil society's call for UN investigation of Israeli apartheid. Among other demands, they've endorsed ending military, business, cultural, and diplomatic ties with apartheid Israel and imposing lawful, targeted sanctions on it. With your support, ending Israeli apartheid is in our hands. And sometimes we can look at these fights, look at these struggles, and see them for what they are politically, see them for what they might be strategically, look at the, the machinations of how we try to get agreements at the UN, we try to get the International Criminal Court to investigate, and these things that can sometimes feel divorced from the humanity. Here's the final piece for this episode. This is written by Nora Selmy, also published at mondoweiss.net. Every Palestinian story is worth being told. It was midnight when I stood at the door to my room debating whether I should go outside to the garden to get my book. Two hours earlier, I was reading a book on the swing and forgot it there. Now, I was considering whether it was worth it to go outside to get it. My sister passed me and gave me that look, wondering what I was doing standing awkwardly in the doorway at this hour. I told her I need to get my book. She didn't initially understand what I meant, but then a few seconds later, as she listened to the weird night calmness that followed the drones, she laughed. Are you afraid of the drones? she asked. Yes, I said simply. Then I continued. A friend of mine who read my articles about the nightmares and the drones told me she would be honest with me and that I should not write anything about such topics again. A week ago I was working on a translation project related to Naji al-Ali's assassination. The article mentioned that the main reason he was killed was that his drawings were a real threat to Israel. Will my simple narratives be the reason for my death? The sudden anxious thought of being assassinated just because of only two articles stuck in my head. Assassinated. The word itself is funny and scary at the same time. I am just sharing a few of the situations that happened to me and my family in Gaza's blockade and war. The word is funny because it doesn't apply to me. Naji al-Ali and Ghassan Kanafani were assassinated because of their huge influence on the Palestinian cause. So what did I do to conjure up such a strong and bitter word? I thought of my family, my little brothers and sisters. Am I putting their lives at risk? I was planning to interview a lot of people about the difficult events they can't forget from during the war. 
Now things have changed. This morning I was on the bus reading a book called Legs Garden. The book describes the life of the people who lost their legs during the Great March of Return and what all they sacrificed just trying to live a dignified life. As I was immersed in the words, the bus driver turned the radio on to the story of the pregnant Palestinian woman, Anar al Deek. The announcer was describing her harsh situation in an Israeli jail. I became lost in my thoughts for a minute when I realized, if we stop sharing our stories, who will? If it wasn't for the book in my hand, I wouldn't have known the story of Hassan, who protested at the fence and lost his leg, or the story of Othman, who lost his life while he was trying to reach his occupied land. If it wasn't for the radio, I wouldn't have known the suffering of Anhar. Days ago, a Palestinian man shot an Israeli soldier, and the first thing that crossed my mind when I heard the news and watched the video was his family. What if they targeted his family and bombed his house? But after the chilling warning my friend shared with me, I was afraid to write anything related to Gaza. I decided not to document any events, not to use my laptop, or even hold my pen. For three days this idea comforted me, but later, as the situation in Gaza got even worse, as the hours of electricity were shortened, and as the Rafah crossing borders were closed, my pen couldn't stand still, and it decided to write against my will. Quote, don't interfere in politics. You could write literary stories like you used to, but don't publish stories about Gaza in your name. What if you caused harm to your family? If we stopped writing stories about Palestine because they put us in danger, then no one would write anything. I don't consider myself a great writer. All I am doing is documenting. Muna al-Kurd was able to let the whole world know about her illegal house eviction through a tweet. Few words could change a whole point of view. If every single person underestimated their words, the world wouldn't have known about us. And of course, this fear of not writing is what Israel wants. But they will never have it. Thousands of stories are out there waiting to be told and published. Thousands of agonies are screaming to be heard. If everyone decided to think only of themselves and their life, we would not have heard anything about the crimes that Israel is doing to us. Every simple act is a resistance. Even one article that is written to expose them to deliver our voices to the world is an act of resistance. Yes, I am a beginner, but I don't think that I will retreat. Whenever I hear a story that is worth being told, I will follow it. Every Palestinian story is worth being told. And that will wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can check out all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at youcan'tbeneutral.com. You can follow on Twitter at YCBneutral. You can listen to this and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. Now, 
a moment of zen. Thanks for listening. Of course, when you, when you approach history that way with a point of view, it's, it's, it can be dangerous to your career. And people always wonder why it is that the textbooks repeat the same stories over and over again, or why history is taught the same way, or why the same set of facts are told over again, or why the same things are omitted over and over again. And the very repetition of those omissions, the very repetition of those points of view become persuasive in telling you, well, this must be the truth. If seven, eight, ten generations of kids learned that Columbus was nothing but a marvelous adventurer and great navigator, <laughs> a real professional, <laughs> you know. And if everyone, if everybody has been taught the same thing for a hundred years, it must be true. And if you teach it in a different way, if you teach something that's been taught the same way, or if you write something uh, that's been taught a certain way, and you deviate from that, and you start to teach or to write something in a new way, well, that may be dangerous for your career. You may not even consciously think of it that way. You're not consciously selling out. It's just that in a society of, of economic hierarchy, in a society of economic insecurity, in a society where everybody is in some way insecure, uh, middle class, working class, everybody's in a situation where somebody has power over them, power over their jobs, power over their tenure, power over their promotion, power over their salaries. In every such situation, there's always the uh, thought or even the <laughs> unthought but felt need for safety. And safety results in teaching a certain kind of way, writing a certain kind of way, presenting uh, the same set of ideas over and over again. Uh, that's safe. But I, I guess you can put it this way. I never wanted to practice safe history. Uh, you know, uh, I remember. <laughs>